My name is David Goldstein. And I'm Brian Brinkman. And you are listening to the first episode of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself will use the lens of the rock band Fish in order to uh, sort of spin off and introduce the listener to other bands and other songs that we think that uh, if you enjoy Fish, you will like very much. Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And I am Ben Greenfield. You are tuned in to episode 35 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. Now I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 53 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself generally use the music of fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. These are usually non-jam bands because we love fish. We are fish fans. The problem with fish Sometimes listeners only listen to fish. They get a bit myopic. They can repeat and memorize set lists and names and lyrics and everything in between, but forget that there's a whole other world of bands out there just waiting for their ear holes, and we are going to do something about that. We certainly are. Today, we are on the corner of... Greenwood Avenue and Porter Road in Nashville, Tennessee on the east side of town at Vinyl Tap. At least this is where we're starting. Mm. We are here to record a very, very special episode. An episode that we've been looking forward to recording probably since the inception of this podcast. We are counting down our top albums from the 2010s. Our top albums of this decade. Quite a decade it's been. Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And holy fucking shit, you're tuned in to episode 100 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. My God. Folks, I'm David Goldstein. And I'm Brian Brinkman. You're tuned in to episode 113 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is generally speaking the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of list introducing a listener to other bands. Because as you know by this point, 113 episodes in, we love Fish, we are Fish fans. The problem with fish fans is they are, have been, and always will be myopic. They listen to their favorite band nonstop, can repeat dates, set lists, times, choices of drugs, you name it, regarding their favorite band. When it comes to other acts, they kind of stare at you blankly. We've been fighting that for a long time. We have, and... um Here in episode 113, we are going to draw the curtain, if you will, on that fight. We think that, I would say we've won this fight. We've convinced more people about 
other great bands within the realm of and outside of the world of fish than I think people knew of before we started. I don't want to take all the credit, Dave. I think that you had more to do with it than I did. Um, <laughs> you know, but certainly have have turned the masses on the like, spiritualized. Certainly have. Uh, we we've been fighting this good fight for about four years now, and. Um, as you can probably tell, if you've listened to Osiris Media over the last couple of weeks, or if you see the title of this episode, this is the final BTP. Um, we are not going away entirely. We are working with Under the Scales, Tom Marshall, as well as guys over at HF Pod, actively working right now to create the Undermine podcast uh, which will explore all things fish from as full of a picture as possible, uh, as most complete picture as possible. And we play a very important role in that by bringing you deep dives into excellent jams that fish has played throughout their history while spinning those jams off into discussions about other fantastic bands that you should be listening to. And from a contextual standpoint, we'll be drawing a little bit more of a line clearer back to the world of fish throughout this. So keep an eye out for that. It's coming out in February. But before we get to that, we are here for our send-off. We are on the raft. Someone has fired the arrows, the lit arrows at us, and we are fading down the river, burning corpse. This is our Viking funeral. This is the Viking funeral. Our night's watch has ended, as they say. (laughs) Some of the themes that are going to be explored in this episode are, thank you, a look back at what's made beyond the pond, and lifting the veil. And now, let's play some more on drugs. Last episode here, we kind of tossed around some ideas about how we should send things off, and we ultimately, um, as we'll talk about here, Beyond the Pond has it's become a lot of things for you, the listener. Um, it's become a lot of things for Dave and I as hosts. Uh, really, like the origins of Beyond the Pond, as like far back as I can remember, were Dave and I being two young dads wanting to figure out a way to drink beer one night a week and talk with like-minded folks about music 
And it kind of grew into something way more than that. And um, so we wanted to get back to the origins. And Dave and I are both, uh, you know, we're indulging a little bit here tonight, um, having some fun. A lot bit. A lot bit. And, um, you know, ultimately, uh, we wanted to lift the veil, as we said here at the top, into Beyond the Pond world and kind of give you some behind the scenes pictures of like who we are, what we've done, and answer some kind of big meaty questions about the two of us and about the show. Before we do that, we have to go back to where this all started. Dave, do you have any recollection of how Beyond the Pond started and why it started? Um, well, certainly, I was actually throwing around a podcast idea in 2016 with um, John Hart, who, of course, wanted to do the Breakdown Pod. It was kind of going to be like a music-slash-beer-pairing podcast. And I forget exactly what the reasons, but it got backburnered and it kept getting backburnered. And it was for the best because that allowed me to um, team up with you on Beyond the Pond. Of course, John went on to do the Breakdown Pod, which is excellent, excellent Grateful Dead podcast on Osiris. So it was kind of kismet in a way. But, you know, I had wanted for a long time to kind of have an outlet which to use fish fandom to turn people onto other bands and then i think once we got started talking um you may have more background and memory of this than i do but i think on our first phone call you were like uh i kind of had an idea of using fish to talk about other bands i was like oh wow <laughs> i had an idea of wanting to use fish to talk about other bands this is pretty great what are we going to call it and you're like well I had some ideas. We could like combine our last names for like Goldman Jams, Brinkstein. Yeah, the Goldman <laughs> Jams, the Brinkstein podcast. I'm like, no, let's not do that. But what was um, we met up at like at the Wrigley Field Fisher, right? The second one. Yeah, that was the first time that we ever met in person. We had been connected on Twitter. I want to say for about maybe a year or so before my first and maybe this isn't the first time we ever spoke but one of my very early recollections of interacting with you online was you tweeted something out that steve gunn remains like the single greatest rock guitarist that you could pay to see in the year 2015 and i was like still is yes and but i was like i know this guy from fish twitter I know he has really good baseball opinions, even though if they're about the wrong team. And he's talking about Steve Gunn. Like, I should probably pay more attention to this account. And that's, like, in my, in my mind, like, the first impetus for us to have conversations. But I knew I wanted to start a podcast sometime as far back as 2015. I'd been writing a lot about fish. I'd been on a few Helping Friendly podcasts. And I kind of knew it was something that I wanted to do with my time. I had no idea how I was going to do it. Uh, I kept going back and forth between strictly talking about fish, which is what I knew, uh, as well as talking about other music, which interested me more from a podcasting standpoint, but I wasn't sure if I was the right person to do it. And you and I met at the Wrigley Field show, uh, 625-16. It's very important to note in this meeting Uh, We met outside of Murphy's. One of us asked the other person what they thought of the show. 
I was a little bit afraid to give my honest opinion because sometimes you give honest criticism about fish. You get called a hater in this world. And Dave came out right and said that he thought uh, outside of the twist, the down with disease and the uh, David Bowie space oddity, space, space oddity cover in the encore that it was a really boring show. And I was like, we see eye to eye. I get, I, I feel you <laughs> on this, man. Uh, that was very, very important. Uh, a couple weeks later, I was up in New York for work. Dave took me to the Blind Tiger. Is that correct? Yep. Yes. Uh, uh, we corner of that's on the corner of Bleecker and Jones, one of the old school daddies of craft beer in New York City. Still one of the best places. Yeah, I remember we had really good beers, and there just happened to be a Cubs-Mets game on from Wrigley Field that night, and we just talked fish, talked baseball, talked about our kids, like, very quickly, very easily became friends. Uh, We ran into each other again, I think in the bathroom line before December 30th, 2016, which oddly enough... Set break. Set break. uh, I was talking with a college friend when you came up, and... I am not like the hugest fan of that college friend. And I very quickly moved to the conversation with Dave and I've actually gotten shit from that person for that, which is kind of hilarious (laughs) because that, that conversation, like us reconnecting, we're talking about a lot of stuff that was happening in my life at that point in time. Um, and three weeks later, two weeks later, whatever it was, I was having beers with RJB, uh, talking about, podcast ideas i had every one of them he told me to keep trying keep thinking keep pulling it over and then the last one i gave was this idea of taking fish music and spinning it out into other music and he was like that's actually a really good idea you should get in touch with dave goldstein perfect i'd already been in touch with dave goldstein uh we talked some saturday afternoon in either january or february very quickly had like a sketch of ideas very quickly zoned in that the first jam we were going to do was the Chalk Dust Torture from Camden, New Jersey on July 10th, 1999. A couple of planning sessions. Didn't really know what we were doing. I f- loosely figured out how to use GarageBand. We got these like halfway decent snowball mics that served a purpose for the first year and a half of PTP. It actually still do serve a purpose because ever since my daughter had to do like remote learning, she uses that snowball mic every day. That's amazing. I didn't know that. That's incredible. Mine's yeah. Mine's in a box somewhere. Um, she's not using my Shure. She's not using my like Beyond the Pond mic. <laughs> we uh, we then made up made a plan. We recorded on like a Tuesday night. Um, I remember I was solo parenting, and I was like, my kid had just learned how to really fall asleep, and so I was able to like hang out in the uh, living room, and we kind of made our way through an episode, recorded it. Sent it out for some feedback and ended up releasing it on March 30th, 2017. And um, that spring, we kind of figured out what we were doing. It took until late spring, episode five, the Alpine Tweezer, for me to really think that, like, we actually have something here that we can continuously build on. Uh, looking ahead quickly to the fall, episode 16, Fishgrass with Jonathan Hart, perfect person to come back in this point. Um, was our first kind of episode that we moved beyond what we had been doing from a traditional standpoint. And I feel like from there, we just, we were running and we, uh, we were putting out episodes every two weeks, aside from a couple breaks, a couple week break that we would take over the Christmas holiday and into early January. We just kept going. 
and we just kept going and kept going, and it's been a fucking joy since then. Anyway, going kind of forward with this discussion, we were thinking about um, stuff that had been part of Beyond the Pond at first that we had cut, whether for brevity purposes or purposes of like streamlining a podcast. What was... What were some things that we cut? Well, the biggest thing that I can remember is um, actually two things quickly that were cut immediately from episode one and never resurfaced. Uh, Number one, we were going to include a segment when we first started the show. And and I'll just quickly digress. Like the problem with starting a podcast is you overthink all this stuff that needs to be in there because you don't think that you can make an hour's worth of content. And I think we had like a two and a half hour podcast to like go when it first started. We really wanted to be around an hour. Um, We were going to discuss what beer we were drinking during each episode. Um, (laughs) This was the biggest piece of criticism that I received when I sent out the pilot. I sent this to probably 25 people who I trusted just saying, please give this a listen. It's very early, but I want to know if there's anything good. And within five minutes, every person wrote back, take out that stupid beer drinking segment. We don't need it. Okay, understood. Nobody cares. The other thing to think about is uh, episode one is the only traditional Beyond the Pond episode to include two segments from the same jam. We include two segments from the Chalk Dust Torture and spin off music from there. That was something that was dropped immediately, not because it wasn't a good idea, but because it just was too complicated. We wanted to keep things pretty simple around like one, around specific themes, one specific jam segment, uh, two segments of music, as well as new album recommendations. Yeah, that was kind of done like a different way. Did we like kind of segue discussions of songs into each other or... Yeah, I think we were like playing like three or four songs in a row and it was more just like a larger general conversation. We didn't plan as much for that episode. Right. It was later episodes that we like within two or three episodes, we started realizing like, and I'm just thinking about this now as we say it, I kept describing the Camden Choctus as Frippian, as in Robert Frippian. And a friend of mine said, you sound like a pretentious <laughs> asshole. I have no idea what Frippian means. And I realized, like, there's a true educational opportunity here. And um, that's when we started really planning out, like, let's give a backstory to each of these artists that we're talking about. It's like the first few episodes of Beyond the Pond, to me, feel like my first few fish shows. And I can remember every nook and cranny of them. (laughs) Like, I can repeat, like, the first three episodes, their topics, what songs we played, and how we went about them. Like fish shows. Once you get to the number like fifty or something, it's like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I but. can like, I could probably sit here and go through each artist that we chose for the first six episodes. You know, Brian, we know that you do the editing most of the time. Well, I should say all the time. What um, what do you usually end up cutting from an episode? So traditional stuff: burps, lip smacks, coughs, cups hitting the table. Uh, that all gets cut. Um, Dave lives right next to the FDR, so the FDR gets cut as much as possible. Police sirens. Back when we... For those not in the know, the FDR being the FDR Drive, which is uh, the long highway that runs down the east side of Manhattan. Yes. So, um, I'm on top of it. <laughs> Back when we first started doing this, we recorded into one file on this app called Call Recorder, so you heard everything. Uh, babies crying... Uh, p- 
police sirens, all that sort of stuff. Um, now we record and we have two separate files, way more professional, and I can cut most of that out. But um, additionally, in most episodes, uh, like the actual BTP file is somewhere in the range of two to two and a half hours. Um, Dave and I will fall into conversations uh, in between segments. We usually kind of do things like we complain about our favorite baseball teams or we rehash Twitter drama that's been happening or we yell at each other. We've been yelling at each other about Trump for the last four years. Uh, This entire podcast has existed under the Trump administration. That's one good thing that's happened during this time. Uh, We give updates on our kids. A lot of different, just kind of like, like I said earlier at the top here, this is an opportunity for us to basically hang out and drink beers virtually and um, just catch each other up on life where we're at. I think it'd probably be a good thing for them to hear something that we have to say about our baseball teams right now. What do you think? Yeah. I'm curious to hear it as well. Four teams won 100 games. Yeah. I mean, God. I definitely didn't see the Twins winning 100 games. Normally, I mean, what, the Mets have 84 wins. Normally, if you can get to, like, 85, you've got a really good shot at the second wild card. But mm-hmm. not this year. Because no. I guess the Brewers are just that good. I think the Brewers are going to get destroyed in the playoffs. I hope. I hope they – I mean, I'll actually be rooting for the Nats in that game. Yeah. Yeah, that game and that game only. So I guess what they would All play right. the Nats and the Nats would have to play the Dodgers. Yeah, the winner of that would play the Dodgers. Oh, okay. Right, and then the Braves will play Cardinals. The Cardinals rematch of the 2012 wild card game, mm-hmm. which was the first ever official wild card game, and it ended in controversy. And I think the Orioles and Rangers played in the wild card game that year. God. And uh, the Orioles won. The Orioles weren't in the playoffs that long ago. And yet, it seems like so long ago. Which is what it was like the last time they were in the playoffs. They're so bad. Yeah. And the last time they were in the playoffs, is that the game where they put the Blue Jays? Yep. Wild card game 20. 20- Fourteen? Uh, no, I think it was 2016. So they were in the playoffs in 2012. They lost to the Yankees in five. And then they made it back in 2014. I think 2014 they got past the they, first round. Yeah, 2014 they made it past the first round. They swept the Tigers, and then they got swept by the Royals. And then 20, yeah, it was 2016 wildcard game. It was them and the Blue Jays because 2015 right, wildcard game, game was the Astros. Didn't use Zach Britton for some reason and got wrecked over the coals yes. for it. Yes, yes, exactly. Or to use Ubaldo Jimenez. Yep. And then I was going to a lot of Orioles games that year and the next year and uh, uh, and in 2015. But um, in 2017, I went and saw the Cubs play the Orioles first series after the All-Star break. And – Quintana pitched a complete game, and I was like, holy shit, we have the ace finally. <laughs> <laughs> Orioles have been killed by 
<laughs> like Chris Davis. Yeah, man. Well, they just they locked up to a bunch of guys that, that are like great baseball players. Well, I mean, they would they would have been serviceable baseball players in the two thousands. Right. So, all right, let's do. All right, let's jump in. All right. So, any idea that we started kind of when we began this podcast or as this podcast has evolved, Dave, that you wish gained more steam? I kind of really enjoyed the one time, um, this was recently for episode 100, that Tom Marshall asked us a bunch of questions from the community. I might have... Had this been going longer, I might have championed another AMA at some point because I thought it was a fun thing to do. Probably probably pretty easy to edit. And I know when I hear podcasts, I like to, you know, learn more about kind of like the opinions and personal lives of the podcasters. It brings you closer to them. Not that we ever hold much back about our personal lives on Beyond the Pond to begin with. But <laughs> still... Yeah, I, I loved that episode, and I'll pause really quick. We're not going to do like a rundown through um, all of our guests in this episode. We did that in episode 100. Anyone who, and we did that, I think, uh, we, we wrapped up our 2020 guests in our last episode. Um, I'll just kind of give a general, anyone who appeared on this episode, on an episode of this show, thank you so much. Um, some of you raised the bar of this show in ways that, you may not have been aware of um, others were really really close friends and it was just incredible to create a space where we could hang out and talk about music and share your own passions so for anyone who appeared on beyond the pond we are internally indebted to you for giving us the time for giving us your thoughts for preparing as much as we ask for these shows um, it's been an absolute absolute like pleasure of of our time and hanging out with all of you people. Um, in terms of ideas, I think could have, or should have stuck if time were not time wasn't part of the equation, if you will, Dave, uh, the first impression series, we did two of these. We had big hopes that these were going to be a real thing for us from midway through our first year. Um, too many episodes. You can find these, still on Spotify and iTunes. Um, essentially, the idea here was we would listen to, one time through, a record that had been heavily hyped from our end that we were really looking forward to. And we would just sit down and talk about it for 30 minutes, play a few snippets. Um, pretty simple stuff. Pretty cool idea. Uh the only two albums we did this for were A Deeper Understanding and Sleep Well Beast, which if you know this podcast as well as we do, those make perfect sense. Um, I thought it offered a really cool avenue for us to highlight our favorite artists' new projects, but it did add a little bit more logistics and kind of the planning. It's one of those things that if I didn't have to work a real job, it would have definitely been part of this show. I think about a lot of great albums that we discovered over the last four years that would have been very cool to like get our first impressions on. Um, you know, and also to like expand it to, hey, we just got this record recommendation from someone. Let's listen to this and let's do an episode about this. So if there's anything that I wish uh, would have stuck around, it would have been that. So, 
At this point, we thought we'd briefly discuss what we actually do drink during Beyond the Pond episodes. <laughs> because, screw you guys, it was a good idea at one point. It was. <laughs> but I'll be, um, it's not very sexy. Normally, I drink seltzer nowadays because I find that, um, if I drink like an IPA at 9.30 at night when, when these usually get recorded, the sugar content will assure that I toss and turn and don't fall asleep until 2 a.m. Getting old sucks. It does. Plus, I find that I uh, sound like less of a jerk when I'm not when I'm not drinking on the microphone. All that being said, sometimes I'll just drink an IPA in the seven percent uh, in the seven percent range. Anyway, I know uh, some of my recent favorites are made by uh, Wild East, Threes, and Grim, all based in Brooklyn. And right now, I'm actually drinking um, a beer from Wild East. It's an India pale ale called Second Encore. I figured it'd be appropriate. Think of the Second Encore as uh, the, the like, Tweezer reprise after Sleepy Monkey. 6.2% citra and mosaic. It's friggin' delicious. Wild East makes really, really good beer. And they've been around for maybe just under a year in the Gowanus part of Brooklyn. So check them out. Yeah, I'm kind of in a similar boat with you. Um... You know, I when I lived on the East Coast in the first year or so of this podcast, I drank almost exclusively carton double IPAs when we were recording. Um, I always looked at my Beyond the Pond nights as like a free hangout night, if you will. Uh, when we moved out here, I kept I'd always crack a beer for a show, and kind of over time, I just I don't drink as much beer as I used to, and I uh, I just find like a seltzer and water. Um, Tim Showalter, uh, one of our best guests, one of our favorite people, uh, when we had him on, he was like, hey, I, it gives me the uh, mouthfeel of a beer, but I remember what I'm talking about. I feel good the next morning. I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm like approaching 35, should probably switch to this. Um, tonight, I decided um, I'm drinking some bourbon. Um, good, you know, national distillery. Uh, Woodford Reserve, really solid stuff. Um, nothing crazy local, um, but I figured, you know, this this episode may turn serious and slightly emotional here in the in the uh, coming half an hour hour or so time period. I, I need some some bourbon in my life for it. You want to be able to cry into your bourbon, exactly. Just like just like a proper national mm-hmm. song. Exactly. You'll be crying into your bourbon, pining over lost love and your salad days. No matter what you think about when you're sitting in your fainting chair drinking pancreas. No matter what you think about when you're sitting in your fainting chair drinking pancreas. Everybody was gone. Staring down the street Cause I was trying not to cry I was solid gold I was in the fight I was coming back From what seemed like a room I couldn't see You coming so far I just turn around And there you are I'm so surprised you wanna dance with me now I was just getting used to living life Without you around 
So let's talk about um, our favorite episodes of Beyond the Pond. I think, for me, some that really stick out is uh, episode 53, MSG, Ghost of the Dead. That was the one where we talked about um, the great show from December 29th of 2018 that had a tweezer that had a really big like China Rider transition jam right in the middle of it. And we kind of picked up in that, and this is one of the few episodes where we didn't really talk about other bands other than jam bands. We talked about Fish and the Grateful Dead, which we seldom ever do, but we talked about, we played some China Riders from um, that episode. We also played some versions of The Wheel, and it was a great show. The episode sounded good, and I think it actually might have been our most downloaded episode in history, so we had to have been doing something right, but it uh, it clicked. Another episode that came to mind is... Um, we did a bonus episode that I wish we didn't have to do after Anthony Bourdain died. So we kind of did a in-memoriam episode because I know that he meant a lot to both of us. And I actually went back and listened to that episode two weeks ago. And it, it holds up. It was uh, That was probably the celebrity death that has hit me the hardest since Jerry Garcia died. It was just a good, impromptu heartfelt episode that we kind of did at a moment's notice and it uh it was a good contrast to the other episode i discussed which was certainly meticulously planned out the most of our episodes are yeah yeah i remember that born in episode um i'm right there with you it, it hit me incredibly hard um and uh I, we had been texting all day and i remember that night it was a friday uh, I was watching game four of the NBA finals and the Warriors were just destroying the Cavs and it was all but over. And I think I texted you and said, okay, I'm done watching this game. I kind of feel like we need to say something or at least we, I, I want to say something about Bourdain and you were game. And we literally just jumped on. It was one of those moments that like, I, you know, another, like if we didn't have day jobs, I'd love to just be, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon. Hey, this happened. We need to talk about it. And we just jumped on and right. put out 30 solid minutes of content talking about our travels, talking about the impact that the man had had on us cooking and our interest in food and our understanding of the world. Uh, you know, we're talking mid 2018. Someone like Anthony Bourdain was incredibly important in, um, you know, the Trumpian era and, and in terms of resisting what the uh, what, what Trump and the Republican Party was trying to do to America and losing him was just devastating in that standpoint. Um, yeah. My favorite episodes, I have two as well. Uh, the first one came right after the Ghost of the Dead episode. We did 
really, really strong content in the early part of 2019. I'd encourage anyone who hasn't listened to basically episode, I'd say episode 50 through like 65, everything in there is gold. And we just, we recorded like three episodes a month and right in there was episode 55, the storage jam with Rob Mitchum. Um, Rob is a great podcaster in his own right uh, over at the 36 from the vault podcast. He's one of my favorite music writers. He does a really phenomenal series right now on Substack, where he is writing about every single fish show on the 25th anniversary of it happening. Uh, we had him on to talk about the storage jam and Rob brought to the table a number of incredible Chicago-based avant-jazz musicians, uh, as well as like bands like Tortoise. Um, that episode kind of cracked my brain open, and it met me at a time when I was really heavily listening to pretty much every live show that was being put out on NYC Taper, and starting to listen to the Avant Ghetto a lot. Um, a lot of the music I listen to today. I would say directly comes from that era and that period and Rob's presence uh, really helped to drive me there. Um, the other episode I would list is episode 79 top albums of the 2010s. Um, this is an episode I'd been dreaming of doing something like this literally from the moment that we decided to start a podcast. I was like, cool, we're just three years away. We're each going to come up with our lists. We'd been doing this at the end of every year, 2017, 18. It was now October, 2019. We flew to Nashville. We had an incredible weekend eating at the redheaded stranger and the butcher and the bee with Brian Weaver. We hung out with Jim Hankey and, uh, we set up shop at vinyl tap, which is a bar slash record store slash performance area right on this cool little corner in uh, just outside of Nashville. And we hung out there for like six hours. At one point I put on the uh, twins Yankees game on my phone and we just drank beers. The twins weren't doing so great. No, I think it was like 10 after like two innings felt bad for Rocco. Sorry, Rocco. Um, yeah, but we hung out. We had this cool little table set up shop. We had random people coming up to us and asking us what in the world we were doing. And then we explained what we were recording. They were like, that is cool as hell. People were hanging around listening to us. And it just felt like this moment where we had fully discovered what we were capable of. And we had taken this trip to do it and had just, just absolutely perfect afternoon talking music, drinking beers, um, like, the best weather you could ever imagine uh, in mid-October. It was just a a glorious event, and um, putting that episode out just made me super proud of everything that we had accomplished. That was a blast. That was the weather cooperated. We had a place to hang out. Nobody bothered us. The owner of Vinyl Tap was really cool. We just drank a lot of Bearded Iris Homestyle, which is a 6%. Mosaic IPA, which is like the perfect thing that you can have a bunch of without getting too loopy. Yeah, that was uh, that was a seriously fun time. Right, that was during the baseball playoffs. Yeah, I do recall that. Um, yeah, 
You're right about like January, February, March, April 2019. That was almost like you can see the transition from the unforgettable fire of the Joshua Tree. (laughs) I think we did interviews. Uh, We had a sit down with Mike and Don from uh, the record label Beyond Beyond is Beyond. I think that's when we interviewed Tim Showalter. We interviewed Chris Forsyth. Jesse Jarno came to talk about Yola Tango. We did a That's right. really cool Dark Star yeah, episode a, with John Hart. Um, There's a lot of interviews. We were cooking with gas. Yeah. We covered a um, 88 Curtain With. It was our first and uh, to this point only 80s episode, which I was really happy. We dipped back in there at one point. It was uh, it was That was 87. Yeah. Uh, 88. Pete's fabulous Fish Fest. Right before they go. It was 88? Up, yeah, right before they go to Telluride. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, oh, okay, that's right. That was the Pete's Fabulous Fish Fest, right? That was Pete's Fabulous Fish Fest, yeah. Great, Pete's great Fabulous, PH Fabulous Fish Fest. <laughs> okay, cool. So, one thing we thought would be fun to do here is uh, rib ourselves a little bit and discuss our least favorite or least essential BTP episode. Um, Dave, what do you got for that? I struggle with this because it's like least essential child <laughs> but I guess if I had to pick I mean if forced to choose episode 35 we discussed the down with disease from September 12th of 2000 because I guess Mike plays a prominent role it's a very Mike led bass jam but that down with disease is fine that show is fine it's not I think we kind of picked that just because we wanted to be a little unconventional and think outside the box but that's not a show or a jam I ever have a strong desire to go back and listen to but at the same time I mean I did get to play Primal Scream and McCluskey on that show I'm guessing because they probably have like heavy bass grooves and I repped the latest album um, from Iceage called Beyondless which I don't listen to that much anymore Aside from maybe like two or three songs on it. I mean, also that episode was sandwiched between our YouTube deep dive and our Bourdain tribute, both of which I madly, madly love. So this kind of the closest thing beyond the pond got to like a redheaded stepchild episode. I thought. It's fair. I mean, I remember planning that episode and I actually remember when I went back and was listening to all fall 2000 this, uh, this fall, uh, I was really excited for that show because of that jam. And I remember being really underwhelmed by the show and even more underwhelmed by the jam. And, uh, like the jam was good, but I was like, why did we def, why did we choose this or a better fall 2000 jams if we wanted to go down that road? So I definitely get what you're saying. My pick is uh, episode 43 Dick's transitions. Um, this episode uh, was recorded after the 2018 Dick's run. And, um, <laughs> Listeners said that we sounded like our dog had died uh, when they listened to this episode. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. I don't remember that. Well, I think it was PJ. Uh, It was (laughs) hearing feedback like that was the first time I was wondering if we were doing the right thing because I went back and listened to the episode based on slightly critical feedback, and I was like, "Yeah, we spent a lot more time kind of focusing on the negative and focusing on things that don't necessarily matter." Um, whereas like those were 
The dick shows after Curveball got canceled, right? It was, and and I think that that clouded okay. some of it. Like the Friday night show is one of my favorite shows I've ever seen, and then I was Saturday Sunday like did not totally. Uh, I don't want to say impress me, but like they weren't incredible shows. There were pockets of greatness uh, mixed in with just kind of kind of tepid playing, if you will. If memory serves, Friday was great. Saturday was not very good. And then Sunday had that weird second set with the Golden Age that was played at like Bobby Weir, like 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 Dead and Co. Speed. Yeah. People were like, "Why is the band playing so slow?" And we're like, "No, it's kind of funky." Yeah. Yeah. The only one, right? It was a cool segment, especially in the moment, and I think it was cool to cover it. But um, I don't know. Overall, like when I look back, like the music selections we made at that, like for that run, weren't the greatest we've ever done. It was kind of like done on the fly because we kind of needed to do it. And I think it just showed, um, I'm really proud of the work that we did responding to tours and responding to segments of tours immediately and recording an episode, putting out basically a week after a quick run has happened and highlighting music. Like it's shown like how quick we can do this, but I don't know if the quality of those episodes have been up there with ones that we've had, like, you know, almost a month to like kind of figure out, marinate with, listen to the jams, talk about the music that we, we've been able to feature. So that would be my pick. So what jam do you think we should have covered instead of the September 12th, 2000 down disease? If we're talking, uh, fall 2000 specifically, um, my favorite jams from that air, that part of the tour that would have been good to cover that weren't super obvious would be the uh, tube from 915. Uh, oh yeah, the rock and roll from 917, or the um, it's ice from 920. Okay, what about you? And aside from that. Well, I'm not thinking so much about September 2000, but in terms of just a jam that I think we should have covered that we just didn't was um, the No Man in No Man's Land from December 31st, 2015. Uh. That is like a ridiculous amount of improv for set three of a New Year's set. That whole set does between... The No Man in No Man's Land when they have like the gigantic hourglass and you see them transfer from like, you know, the small stage to the bigger stage. In addition to being being visually arresting, it completely holds up on tape. It's really cool. And then they go and play one of still what could be like a top ten version of Blaze On. Absolutely uh, stunning 
jam, stunning improv, and you're absolutely right. That whole third set was remarkable. Uh, that's one of my favorite New Year's shows that we've seen in 3.0, and that would have been a very cool jam uh, to cover and kind of figure out what we would do with it. I, I would say kind of the other jam I'd be thinking of is um, the August 14th, 2004 ACDC bag. Um, it's one of my favorite jams of all time. I really wish that we had taken a stab at Coventry. Um, if there's any mm. regret I have, it's that we never fully talked about or addressed Coventry on this podcast. We might at some point. We might. Undermine. We, might. we yeah, could yeah, get yeah. there. We'll, we'll still have a chance <laughs> to. But, um, you know, that was just, that was, uh, that's one of my favorite jams I've ever witnessed. And it would have been cool to cover. I think we only did one 2004 jam throughout the entire run of Beyond the Pond, which was the Susie Greenberg from uh, wow. June 17th, 2004, uh, which is a great, yeah. great, great jam. Um, and that was a ton of fun uh, to do. But um, yeah, that would have been that would have been my pick. So, on a positive note, we have interviewed quite a few people here. Uh, I'm really impressed by all the interviews that we've had. Do you have any favorite interviews that we've ever conducted, though? Um, I like them all, but I really liked interviewing Sean Doolittle. He's a uh, he's a free agent now. At the time we interviewed him, he was about to go to spring training for uh, maybe actually he was at spring training for. The Washington Nationals. That interview took place and was published like right before the COVID shit hit the fan. Yeah. <laughs> like I think it came out of like, we might have put out either the first week of March or the last week in February. No, it was like literally like it was the 10th and the 12th. Like we, we li- oh, it literally got overshadowed by COVID. Yeah, exactly. It got swallowed by COVID. But that interview was fun because, um, first of all, Sean's a great guy. He's a model citizen, and he was, even way before Beyond the Pond, he was somebody I had really admired for um, his very like progressive views and using his status as a professional baseball player to, to really advocate for positive change. So kind of, once we learned he was a fish fan, we thought, wow, we should really try to get this guy on Beyond the Pond. So I literally just reached out to his agent I sent his agent this guy Jason Cook you know like a long email saying what we were about and how we admired Sean and we think that he'd be a great fit for the podcast and his agent wrote back like two days later I was like oh okay <laughs> and he said yeah Sean's like busy at spring training but I'll run it past him and see what he says and then I think like two days after that I got a response saying yeah he'd totally be into it so uh that's um type of I was impressed at which the speed which which that got done and yeah that was an extremely fun interview talking about baseball talking about music talking about fish I think we actually taught him how to use the 
uh, the re-listen app with, of course, all the, like, he's like, no, he's like, no way. I'm like, yeah, it's got all these Fish and Dead shows on it. And he looked out on his phone. He's like, you got to be kidding me. This is great. So that was, in terms of, uh, obviously, Beyond the Pond is always, we love fish. We love baseball. We love minutia. So that was the ultimate meeting of the fish baseball minds. So that was, that was lots of fun. And yeah, it got overshadowed by COVID, but so did a lot of things. That was those were the only episodes my mom has listened to. She was so thrilled that uh, we got a major league baseball player on the podcast. That was super cool for her. Yeah, my 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 dad was impressed. He listened to part one. I don't think he listened to part two. <clears throat> yeah, because part one was mainly baseball, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was fun. Um, It'll be interesting to see how it changes um, once the dust settles. And and you mentioned. Um, you know, that the game has changed. Uh, it, it's constantly ebbing and flowing as, as uh, you know, pitchers make adjustments and then hitters make adjustments. And, and we've seen, we've seen, you know, we saw a home rec- a home run record get absolutely smashed last year for the, the most home runs ever hit in a single season. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, across, that's a good point. Across the league. So um, the game has changed so much recently where um, you're seeing, uh, in, in baseball, we call it the, the, the three true outcomes where you have, um, it, you're seeing an increase in walks, you're seeing an increase in strikeouts, and you're seeing an increase in home runs where the, the philosophy has shifted so much that pitchers have gotten so good they're throwing harder than they've ever thrown before. Right. Um, their stuff, the stuff, just the raw stuff is their, their breaking pitches are so much more explosive and um, they're doing things that, that have never really been done before that it makes sense from a percentage standpoint, it makes sense to take like three of your best swings to try to drive the ball out of the ballpark. And if you strike out, well, that's okay. At least you didn't ground into a double play. Like, um, Mm. and you know, maybe, maybe in those, as you're, as you're trying to take three swings to, to, to hit a home run, maybe you essentially scare the pitcher out of throwing, uh, throwing the ball over the plate and you, and you draw a walk and you pass it on to the next guy. And, um, you know, so you're seeing, you're seeing the game change a little bit. The, the stolen base, um, has kind of become a lost art. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. Um, we, we actually, we don't really know, um, how prevalent this was if other teams were doing it. Um, but as, as technology has, uh, really increased in our game, the game plans are so much more advanced. Um, the, the amount of data that teams have now on their opponents, um, not just video, but like actual numbers, um, percentages that, uh, of pitches thrown in certain situations. Um, they're so advanced now that, uh, when you go into a game, like you, you know more about your opponent than at any point in our game uh, up to this Mm. point. So, um, it'll be interesting to see if teams, there's a thought that teams are are actually going to go back to, um, maybe how the game was, you know, 15, 20 years ago when it was a little bit more, uh, small ball oriented where players were more focused on, uh, trying to put the ball in play and, and make something happen. Um, stealing bases, bunting, um, are these little things going to start coming back into the game? Um, you know, as pitchers, the pitchers are racking up strikeouts at record rates too, uh, because these guys are, are, uh, hitters so often are going for this kind of all or nothing approach. Um, are we, are hitters going to make an adjustment to where they're, they're up there 
and they're willing to they're they're willing to hit singles. They're willing to to get on base any any possible way they can. Um, you know, those are some of the things that um, you know the game has a way of kind of correcting itself, and and it'll it'll be interesting to see if those are some of the things that start coming into play uh, more over the next uh, over the next few years. Well, like you guys have Trey Turner. Yeah, I would go back uh, to interviews. I love that Sean Doolittle interview. Um, Stephen Hyden came on in episode 32, I want to say. And um, that was, at the time, just a huge, huge get for us. Um, To find out that he was interested in coming on the podcast, first and foremost, and was able to just share so many cool thoughts about both Fish as well as, like, Fish's connection to other music. And... um, then we all started kind of connecting with him past that and uh he's become a really good friend uh i work on a few of his shows at this point in time and um he's just a really nice awesome guy who's given great advice in terms of things that we should do with this show ways to kind of stand out in this kind of media realm and um his music recommendations are awesome i love his writing um it was just a huge, huge moment for the show and uh, was really cool to kind of start that friendship there. Um, we also had an episode, I think, 44. Uh, the writer, Grayson Haver-Curran, um, who writes for a number of publications. I first read him in Pitchfork. He was in the midst of a cross-country, I think, like, ended up being like 25-month road trip with his wife, Tina. Um, and he wrote about what it was like to drive on kind of abandoned rural roads in 2017 America and be listening to a CD player and that experience of like listening to CDs rather than streaming services because you couldn't get internet that far out in the world and uh, having him on to discuss that was really really cool Um, as well as we dove deep on everything from how he moved from like certain music how he moved from like the Dave Matthews band to Neil Young to Tony Conrad rather than Dave Matthews band to Fish to Neil Young whatever path he took and it was cool to like hear the different paths that people can take as listeners as well as um, we talked a lot about the County Crows which uh, which was great I think he was was recording it in Omaha at the time so it was was, uh, kind of a perfect spot to have that conversation didn't he have to find some place to charge his phone or he was looking for a gas station? Yes. Was... <laughs> All right. Yeah, that was a very cool interview. Also, the first interview with Stephen Hyden for me was a serious trip. That's a guy I've been reading his writing for years. And just having him on the podcast a few times and getting, uh, like, developing a friendship with Steven has been really cool. So I certainly concur with that. Totally. And his podcast at Rob with Rob Mitchum is great. I love 36 from the vault. Yeah, they do really good work. Um, definitely always loved uh, loved him in that in that realm. So it was awesome to have him on. So, um, but but no, like, to get back to your question, I don't think anyone's doing it on a level of fish, but there are bands that I think um, do people to collect their shows, even if they're not making their shows as different as fish does and you mentioned springsteen you know springsteen doesn't improvise on the level that fish does you know he changes the set list but you know there's not a dramatic difference 
if you're going to hear Thunder Road in one show versus Thunder Road in another show. Right. It's similar to what Pearl Jam does, where they're not necessarily going to jam out on every song. And yet, because I was trying to explain this to like a friend of mine who loves fish, and he's like, well, why do you collect Pearl Jam shows? Like, what's the difference there? And it's like, well, when you listen to like a Pearl Jam live show, it's like Eddie Vedder might talk about the weather at that show <laughs> or you know there might or maybe like mike mccready like dropped his guitar in the middle of a solo and he picked it back up and <laughs> and like with a bit and you know it's not going off on a 20-minute jam that's totally unique but there are little sort of atmospheric things and that those bands do that that make it fun that give it a documentary aspect almost like we're you know i think the fun of following fish is that it's like following a baseball team you know like you you, you're with them all the time you you feel like you get to know the band you you feel like you're with them when you're listening to the shows and um i think you get that from other bands even if they're not jamming as much you know like i saw um uh, Wilco on their last tour. I saw the the last three shows of their tour. They did a three night stand here uh, in in St. Paul at the Palace Theater, and it was awesome to see a band like that doing a stand and see. You know, they played different set lists every night, but it wasn't like it was probably like sixty percent or so the same and forty percent different. And it's funny because like I would hear. Fish fans in my Twitter feed kind of complain about that, that they weren't, it wasn't enough variety for them. Not really understanding that, like, for the average music fan who's maybe, maybe only going to go to one of those shows, you know, they want to hear, uh, you know, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they're going to want to hear Out of Sight, Out of Mind. They're going right. to want to hear I'm Trying to Break Your Heart. Um, you know, you can't go too far out with a band like that. But, like, if you're a Wilco fan, like, 40% difference with each set list and a different Nels Klein guitar solo, maybe on like impossible Germany, two out of three nights. That's like still pretty cool, you know? And like, you kind of want to hear impossible Germany more than once, you know, you want to hear what Nels Klein does. Cause he's, cause he's going to do something different, maybe not dramatically different, but if you've heard enough versions of it, it's cool. And even if it's kind of the same. It's still an awesome guitar solo. Like you want to hear what he's doing. So um, I don't know. I I do think that more bands though should be doing this. I think there's a lot of indie bands. Like I think of a band like Real Estate, for instance. Okay. I think I think that band has it in them to uh, play two sets and to maybe stretch out a little bit more instrumentally. And I think that they would attract more fans. I think that they would actually become, um, I think, you know, cause like I've talked to Martin Courtney of, he's the leader of that band. I know he loves Yola Tango. Oh, and yeah. I think, and, and, and that's like his favorite band of all time. And he's recorded, they recorded, I think their third record at the Wilco loft, you know? So like they kind of are engaging in that world a little bit, but I think there's a little bit of weariness for them being a little bit too jammy. All right. But to me, that's an example of a band that would actually... Thanks, everyone, who's hanging with us. This has been... This is fun. It's fun for us to just kind of dive into kind of memory lane and just talk through uh, kind of where our heads are at. Um, we're going to do some rapid-fire stuff here. Dave, what was the best album that I turned you on to since 
Beyond the Pond started. Uh, Blink-182 <laughs> by Enema of the State. <laughs> really got me to rethink the quality of Tom DeLonge and Mark Hoppus <laughs> and Travis Parker. But seriously, the last two next albums, Three and Body. Oh, yeah. Both of which are amazing, and both of which you liked a whole lot. And I kind of had to push myself to listen to them, and I'm glad I did, because they're awesome. And what was the best album I turned you on to? Uh, I would say, I mean, there's been a lot of them. Um, I would say the number one is Spiritualized, ladies and gentlemen. We are floating in space. I, I'd listened to Spiritualized only casually prior to the start of Beyond the Pond. Uh, Sweetheart, Sweet Light. Um was really the album that like first introduced me to the band um but ladies and gentlemen you talked about that record as i I think we featured that record in uh an episode where we talked about the raleigh runaway gym from um uh 1995 and then (laughs) you just kept pushing that record and i remember listening to it i was going to meet a friend for happy hours september 2018 I threw that record on walking away from the office to the to the bar I was meeting them at, and I was just like, literally floating on air. It was such a cool like. I had the music just turned up so loud, and there's no distortion. It was just super super clear. These like airy big moments. I mean, it was just awesome. See, one of the ultimate records for getting your heart broken and just letting it pour out of you, but instead of crying into bourbon Jason Pierce is crying as the needle goes into his veins and all the life is sucked out of him <laughs> and presented in epic orchestral shoegaze rock and roll amazing fucking record yeah. so good I'm glad you got into that album what are your top five fish shows of all time top five fish shows of all time are in no particular order but I know the number one and number two so for what it's worth uh, December 30th, 1997, July 25th, 1999. Those are my one and two. And then filling out 123093, 730, 2003, and August 31st, 2012. How about you? Mine would be December 1st, 1995, Hershey, my all time favorite two set fish show. Then probably uh, December 14, 1995 from Binghamton, about 25 years ago. November 28, 1997 from Worcester. August 19, 2012 from Bill Graham. I just love that first 45 minutes of set two so goddamn much. I can't stop listening to it. The rest of the show is very good, but that elevates it to my top five. And then August 14, 2009 from Hartford. Kind of a lot of shtick, but both the venue holds a lot of sentimental value. Um, I had a lot of good friends at that show. Good shtick. It's a really good show, but that's kind of like, that's a warm and fuzzy pick. I totally feel that. What was your favorite and least favorite fish show that happened since Beyond the Pond started? Favorite, October 23rd, 2018, night one of Nashville. I just love that ghost in that Mike's groove so fucking much. That show wasn't actually, they didn't, um, there wasn't a video of that. 
but I mixed that. So I just remember sitting on my couch and my feet were like tapping on my coffee table. My wife was like, what the hell are you doing? You're going to destroy our coffee table tapping your feet, asshole. I'm like, you don't understand. Mike's song just went like C major. It never happens. <laughs> Least favorite fish show, December 8th, 2019, night three of Charleston. Uh, fish didn't know what they were doing that show. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> That is like the weirdest show that has happened uh, that I can really remember. I mean, since like the 2.0 era, that, that was like a bad 2.0 show where it was just like, what in the hell were you guys thinking Aside from you came on stage? The highlight of that show was opening with Sigma Oasis. Yes. Like, oh, it's a pretty oh, yeah, great yeah, song. Yeah. Great song. But set two, there were no guardrails and they, they could have used some guardrails in that show. What about you? Uh, my favorite show since BTP started was, um, I just listened to this, uh, the other day, December 30th, 2018. Um, Mm. there are moments where I think that this is the best show of 3.0. Um, and then I listen back to the fuck your face show and to me, like the importance of that show, what that did to change the trajectory of 3.0. I don't think there's been any show since then, even jam filled even the man, even Magna ball that even 12, 30, 18 that have like completely altered the state of fish in uh, 3.0, the way that the fuck your face show did. Uh, but 12, 30, 18, I remember loving it in the moment. It just was one of those shows that every song that started, even on my couch, my wife and I were high fiving. Um, it was just, it was so much fun to take it in the moment and it holds up that everything's right. The light, the uh, split open and melt, all the weird hijinks and set one and crazy bust outs. Like that is a show you press play on and you're just sucked in the whole time. Um, my least favorite show, it's kind of a weird pick, uh, July 2nd, 2019. Uh, is that SPAC? That was SPAC. Um, I made a very declarative statement on Twitter that night (laughs) that I ended up kind of like eating crow from. And ultimately I learned a lot from, I I will say. Um, But they, they ended the second set with like, I I don't know exactly what the songs were. I don't have it in front of me, but it was something to the, to the effect of like Wilson, Golgi, Susie, uh, Chalk does. Yeah, it was just like everything was five minutes. It was energy into energy into energy, but it was energy in a way that was like nobody needs to hear these songs right now. Like close out with a big hairy hood, and you because they had a really good set to that point. And I kind of tweeted out that, uh, well, I won't have to listen, or I know I won't listen to this show ever again. Uh, I think the word you listen. I think the word you used was unlistenable. I did use unlistenable. You're right. Mm. Um, now, in my slight defense, I've never listened to that segment of a show since then. I have no interest in it. I don't think anybody online is preaching about how great the fourth quarter of seven two nineteen was. Has have you ever heard anyone be like, guys, this is actually underrated? No, it's, it was pretty autopilot. Exactly. So, to my point, nobody like praises this show. But I think what I learned in the defense I had to uh, 
create for that kind of the, the PR disaster, if you will, on a very small level. Uh, and some of the <laughs> good conversations I have with people who were like, hey, I really like your podcast, but like that type of blatant negativity is just not cool, was it made me a better listener. It made me better understand and better uh, um, hear things that may not directly appeal to my ear and try to understand it in a way that was further away from good, bad, greatest, worst, kind of these um, binary ideas into more describing like the mood of music. And it made me ultimately better at what I do. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful for it, but I do not and did not enjoy that show in the moment. Just uh, briefly getting back to December 30th, 2018. I was, I was at that show. I was in at Madison Square Garden, the Chase Bridges. It's like um, pretty high up, but kind of like individual seats. It's like a really good ring around the arena that's really, really awesome when you're at Knicks games. If you're uh, at Knicks games, you're probably pretty sad, but you'd be happy up in the Chase Bridges maybe. So I was uh, had a very overhead view of the band, and that the whole show is great, but that Everything's Right, I think that's probably the best version of Everything's Right to date. That just had this like gorgeous underwater, you're like scuba diving in a coral reef and mermaid comes out to greet you and you touch the mermaid's hand. And it's just like unbelievable version of that song. And the light had like two distinct jams. There's a plasma in that set. Yeah, I mean, like Brian said, it was like so well put together. It almost like could have been like, like stripped it. But of course it wasn't because it's fish. Mm-hmm. So... Just a phenomenal set. So one thing that's really picked up steam since we started is there have been a lot of Live Fish official releases um, that have come out since we started. I think I counted recently. There's been somewhere in the range of 20, which is kind of wild. It's like right in the range of the original Live Fish series. Um, And a lot of these, Kevin Shapiro's dug deep into some really good shows that... um, five, six years ago would never have gotten the treatment um, to be released uh, and, and have come out. And it's been great. Um, Dave, do you have any personal favorites that have been released since the start of BTP? Probably uh, November 30th, 1995 from Dayton. I mean, I think we said recently on a show that November 30th, despite being in November, that feels like the first show of December 1995. It's just a really excellent top-to-bottom show. Phenomenal tweezer. You know, everything, the extra mustard, even the versions of Sample in a Jar and Free, like, during that show was uh, really good. I remember was a carrot. We in Nashville. Every, every, first, hmm? every, first, every song in the first set has a carrot. It's not like a direct segue. Yes. It's just, like, that fade out into the next, that just, like, energy yeah, building, bam, building, building. Bam. And that tweezer kind of had, like, a really short portion of like the psycho tweezer from hell that would become fully realized with the new haven tweezer a few days later on uh de- december 2nd i remember listening to that show in nashville we were recording um the top albums of the 2010s we were in our motel room you had passed out and i was just on my bed listening to that show <laughs> watching baseball you might have been snoring <laughs> it's like the ultimate beyond the pond moment is you were snoring. I was listening to November 30th, 1995 and watching baseball. 
We were, the we were watching so. the uh, Nationals Dodgers game, and the Dodgers yes were supposed to rail through. They were supposed to blow the Nationals away, and the Nationals had the dream postseason. Yeah, that was an amazing postseason. Like I'm in, being a New York, I'm a New York Mets fan, so I'm not supposed to like the Nationals, and I guess I don't. But that was a fun, fun postseason to watch. Yeah, it was great, and I think we'll we'll have more to say about that postseason in a little bit. Um, my favorite official live fish releases since we started. Uh, I went with two: um, June fourteenth, nineteen ninety-five, and July twenty-third, nineteen ninety-nine. Um, Quickly, I am a huge proponent of Summer 1995 Fish. It's one of my favorite tours the band has ever gone on. And the uh, June 14th show kicks off a three-night run, 14th, 15th, 16th, uh, across the southeast that have huge, huge jams and feature a fantastic set list. This one, of course, is the Mud Island Tweezer. Really, really great jam to finally get in soundboard. And July 23rd, 99, um, I love the three-night run of uh, July 23rd, in Polaris Amphitheater in Columbus, Ohio, uh, July 24th, Alpine Valley, July 25th. I mentioned this before, Deer Creek. Those three shows back to back to back are just fantastic. And um, the July 23rd show, I always loved it, but hearing that in Soundboard and then being able to watch that show just a couple months ago mm. on uh, the Dinner and Movie series, uh, seeing Fish in 1999 and how laid back they were and how spacey things got and just watching it happen uh it was a joy and and hearing that like that birds of a feather and soundboard quality birds is incredible it was like a half hour yeah and the uh, earlier it doesn't feel like a half hour earlier in this set the ghost into free is one of my favorite segues of all time where they have the loop from trey that's being looped into the intro of free and oh man it just gets me and that's the show where Trey's like, hey, we're playing Cyprus. Yeah, <laughs> the announces Cyprus, right. yeah. Right. All right, Brian. Top five, your de- top five desert island albums. On the fly. Nothing's written out in advance. You just got to name them. All right. Um, you two, Unforgettable Fire. Uh, Wilco, Yankee, Hotel Foxtrot. War on Drugs, Lost in the Dream. The Kinks, Lola, and The Power Man. Uh, Dylan, Time Out of Mind. Okay. What about you? Um, let's see. Neil Young, Tonight's Tonight. Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, Free For All. Miles Davis in a silent way. Pearl Jam's ten. And maybe REM's automatic for the people? Good picks. Okay. Good picks. I think we should be on a desert island together because I need tonight's night in my uh, in my list. Yeah, and I could use Yankee Hotel Fox Drive. It'd be interesting. I think we've featured all of at least eight of those albums in Beyond the Pond. Yeah, it's been absolutely. It's been. We definitely there was a Silent Way portion at one point. Definitely free for all. Um, Silent Silent Way was was in our second episode. 
That's, yeah, oh, that's right. Second episode where we talked about, like... That's interesting, right? In that second episode, we kind of just talked about, like, transcendent musical experiences that we had. Yes, yes, It kind of didn't do it the jam. It was just, like, let's get to know your hosts kind of thing. Right. Yeah, you talked about uh, the experience of going to the library and listening to that record. And I remember listening to that record for the first time the next day after we recorded and being like, holy shit. No, it's Silent (laughs) Way. I, I heard it. The first time, very stoned in my friend's dorm room, looking up at the ceiling oh, and yeah. thought I saw clouds. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah, or as free for all I listened to at the Rutgers Library. Yes, that is true. So, let me think. Ah, uh, I want you to defend the worst period of your favorite artist. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um,. I was thinking about this and I was thinking I'm either going to defend Bob Dylan in the eighties or U two since 2005. Um, I'm going to, I found a way to defend both of these artists, um, in a, in the same way. Uh, so Bob Dylan in the eighties goes from this evangelical period that is way better in hindsight than it was in the moment. Uh, the band he recorded with recorded a ton of his records at muscle shoals at the time incredibly tight band he moves into one of my favorite dylan records of all time infidels um into these like trio of records get knocked out loaded um empire burlesque and uh down in the groove that are if you combined all three of them i think you'd have a good record there but there's just not good enough songs scattered across all three that it's this very clear down period for dylan and it concludes then. There's Oh Mercy uh, in 1989 with Daniel Lanois. That's a phenomenal record. And then he kind of takes a dip again. And you've got um, Under the Red Sky before you move towards later 1990s with um, Time Out of Mind and another Renaissance period. And so to defend Dylan in that, it's that to get from Blood on the Tracks in 1975 and to Time Out of Mind in 1997, he had to go through these multiple wilderness periods where you had small peaks, decent peaks, I would say, in Infidels and No Mercy, surrounded by a really kind of incomprehensible period for rock artists in his evangelical era, uh, an era of songwriting that was really uninspired and went backing musicians that just didn't suit Dylan in any way whatsoever. And anytime you listen to those mid eighties records, it just does not sound like Dylan at all. In a lot of cases, he sounds very lost, but he had to have that to get to time out of mind. Now, how to connect this to U two. I would say U two's last good record was no land in the horizon in 2009. Before that, their last great record was 1993's Zuropa. Basically, since Zuropa, they have wandered through this wilderness of either too much uh, extravagance in pop to these like too pure trying to find the magic of the 1980s in All That You Can't Leave Behind and uh, How to Dismantle Atomic Bomb. It's kind of weird diversion with No Line on the Horizon. And then these two records that came out in the 2010s that have really great moments, but ultimately are just overpacked with producers and ideas that they just sound so cluttered and like the band is trying to impress someone who's never going to be impressed with them. I will be able to defend this period 
when you two does something that we prescribed to them in our episodes with Ryan Nichols back in episode 33 and 34, where we tracked through every U2 album. They needed to just record a fucking album. They need to stop laboring over a fucking album for four years. They need to stop going to 16 different producers and trying to get every single arena rock and pop and hip sound possible. They just need to make a record. And I don't know if we're going to have it, but I, I, I want to believe like you, what they have to do is they have to hire Vance Powell, who actually recently said it, um, our friend Jim Hankey with the vinyl emergency podcast, he interviewed Vance Powell and he said, I can make the best fucking U2 record. <laughs> so yes, he did. they should uh, <laughs> take him at his word and go let Vance Powell make your next record because he'll yeah. he will bring out the best in Bono and The Edge and Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. I, I will say if they can make a record that is on par with Dylan's Time Out of Mind Dylan's Rough and Rowdy Ways you know what Springsteen just did with Letter to You I will be so happy and I will be able to make so much sense of what has happened to you two over the last 30 years. Yeah, you two is overdue for their Dark Night of the Soul record. They really are. It's like, it can still happen. But at last I heard they were trying to record in like with like Ryan Tedder, which... Get the fuck, fuck away Ryan from Tedder. Get away from that. Get away from that. Fuck Ryan Tedder. Just like, come on, Bonnie, you almost died. You were in like a horrible bike accident in Central Park. Right about that. It's just like all that they stand for now musically is like to make music that Imagine Dragons can then try to emulate. And, and, right. And, and I just I, I don't understand it. I don't understand the path they're walking down now. I want to defend this era. I want it all to make sense. I can't. The Joshua Tree and the Unforgettable Fire and Zeropa and Octung Baby. You have it in you to make like one last epic we're looking back, we're old record. Yeah. So anyway. What do you got? Um Defend the worst peer to your favorite artist. Well, uh, I guess probably my favorite artist who's not a jam band is REM. Their worst album by far is 2004's Around the Sun. So that's best explained by after 1996's New Adventures in Hi-Fi, their drummer Bill Barry left the band, which left R.E.M. down to three members. And Michael Stipe said, Well, a three-legged dog is still a dog. It just has to learn to run a bit differently. And that manifests itself in kind of albums that had drums on them, but without like an actual drummer. So they put out Reveal in 1998, I believe, which, uh, no, not, I'm sorry. They put it up. That was their first Bill Berry-less album in 1998. Kind of overlong, but interesting experiment. 
had some good songs. Then it kind of pointed the way forward. Reveal, which came out in 2001. That was kind of like a very Beach Boys, summery, shiny album that was about half good. And then in 2004, Around the Sun just sounded like a bunch of laptop experiments with the disembodied voice of Michael Stipe kind of floating above. There were no Mike Mills background vocals. It sounded it sounded more like a Michael Stipe solo project as opposed to R.E.M. They'd kind of like taken the drummerless version of R.E.M. to kind of unhealthy extremes. <laughs> and that record was produced by Pat McCarthy, who to that point probably... The things he was best known for is producing Luna records, like Luna's um, Penthouse, uh, Luna album Pup Tent. And if you read Luna frontman Dean Warham's, um, his memoirs from 2005 called Black Postcards, which you should totally read because it is one of the best rock memoir of all time, he kind of gets into the mindset of Pat McCarthy, and you can say, oh, this guy should have been put anywhere near an R.E.M. record. But to defend that period, um, they put out a live album after that. There was like R.E.M. Live, and it showed that some of the songs from Around the Sun were actually better when they had like a live drummer behind them and when they weren't all back to back to back to back. So when they could actually pick and choose songs from the record, and they had a real drummer. They sounded a lot better. And also because the band, especially the guitarist Peter Buck, said that the sessions for Around the Sun, nobody was communicating and were kind of torturous. Mm-hmm. And that's not how they wanted to go out. So that manifests in their last two records, Accelerate and Collapse Into Now, being, you know, good, excellent sounding REM rock albums that had a real drummer. Um, I think the drummer was the late Bill Riflin, who had also been the drummer for Ministry, kind of like alt-rock drummer for Hire. And those last two records are great. You know, good rock and roll, very strong way to go out on. And I think they only got there by realizing they had kind of screwed up a bit massively on Around the Sun. Um, God, one time I was communicating with a buddy on Twitter about how we didn't like around the sun. I think he like tagged like Mike Mills, the bass player who's very active on Twitter. And he actually like responded saying like, you know, fuck you guys. Oh my God. And we wrote back. Like, oh, we're huge REM fans. We're really sorry. We just thought you recognized that around the sun wasn't very good, but we love you, Mike. We're sorry. Really? We are. <laughs> so that's, yeah, not a great record, but it resulted in some good albums. So, so you worked out your excuses Turned away and shut the door The world's too vast for us now And you wanted to explore It's a long, long, long road And I don't know which way to go If you offered me your hand again I'd have to walk away All right. Um, It's only appropriate in uh, the last BTP that we finally indulge ourselves to talk a bit more about baseball. And uh, we have two 
segments that we just wanted to run through here because as you heard previously baseball is a huge part of our lives and uh it comes up when the recording is on but in content that we don't ever intend to get out there so dave what is your favorite baseball game of all time and why here's a baseball game of I think I've talked about it before and beyond the pond. I forget in what context, but this is um, July twenty second, nineteen eighty six. This was the New York Mets versus the Cincinnati Reds. So it's often said how baseball games are like fish shows, in that you kind of there's a basic framework, there's a baseball, there's a rock concert, but it's different every night. You never know what's going to happen when you show up at the ballpark. You never know what's going to happen when Fish gets on stage. This game is an excellent example of that. This was um, a Mets-Reds game that went 14 innings. And in the ninth inning, I think the Mets were down. There were two outs. And I forget who it was in the Mets. Hit a lazy fly ball to center field. Could have been a can of corn. Uh, Reds after the Dave Parker Cobra. He uh, had the ball bounce off his glove. Mm. It should have ended the game. Bounced off the glove. Mets tied up. Goes into extra innings. So this game is most famous for, if you go to YouTube, and you type in the words Ray Knight, being the Mets third baseman, it'll be the auto, uh, the auto fill-in will be fight. So you click on that, and you see in this game... Uh, Cincinnati Reds third baseman Eric Davis kind of slides into Ray Knight really hard. And Ray Knight, who is a gold gloves boxer, doesn't take too kindly to it, proceeds to try to beat the shit out of Eric Davis. <laughs> Huge bench-clearing brawl, which got many players and both teams were ejected from the game. So now the Mets realize that they're out of outfielders because of who was in the brawl, because the 86 Mets were uh, high on drugs all the time and got in a lot of fights. So... This is the game when they had to put relief pitchers in the outfield. They had uh, the reliever's left-handed guy, Jesse Orozco, in the outfield. He was in the outfield, and Roger McDowell was pitching right-handed. And then the manager, Davey Johns, would like switch him out. So then Roger McDowell would go into the outfield, and Jesse Orozco would pitch. So the Mets ended up winning the game in 14 innings, but not before using relief pitchers in the outfield. Like, Davey Johnson said, like, eh, these guys are athletes. I know they could do it. And I remember distinctly, I was seven years old. I went to bed in the seventh inning. And the next day, I got up, and it was a Saturday. I went and got hot dogs with my dad. I said, Dad, what happened in the baseball game? He's like, son, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. So I'm going to tell you about the baseball game. <laughs> this is me. This is before the internet. This is before highlights, ESPN. You know, you had to like look to box scores. My right. dad proceeded to tell me everything that happened. And you can watch the game on YouTube. I think with the Reds broadcasters, they might sync up the Reds radio broadcast. I, I forget what it is, but I've like spent many a late night watching this game on YouTube. So, yeah. July 22nd, 1986. It's a good game. That is a fish show baseball game. That is the epitome of a fish show baseball game. <laughs> so that is like Trey Anastasio playing like Wipeout on a whim, like he did in Worcester '98. Right, right, right. right. Or like the uh, encore from August 12, 2010, that 
They play Fee, and he uses the megaphone for the first time and then proceeds to whip it around, and you get an N2O yes. and a Kung, and you get a fire to end it. And you're just like, this was a good show, but then, like, how did this just happen out of nowhere? Um, so my stock answer, obviously, is Game 7 of the uh, 2016 World Series. Um, as a Cubs fan, mm-hmm. it's... I remember talking to my mom after the game and being like, I wish it was, had been easier. You know, some people get to watch their baseball team win like a four ho-hum sweep and they uh, win the world series. We had to suffer a comeback from three, one down and then blow a six run lead in game seven. Finally win it after a rain delay, insane, very Cubsian moment. Um, but I'm going to go with one that uh, does not involve one of my favorite, my, my favorite team. Um, but is. I always look to this game as the game that I'd been a baseball fan my whole life. Uh, I'd been watching baseball uh, for my whole childhood. I played baseball. This game happened and it took my love for baseball to a completely different level. And I equate it to the first time I heard the uh, Boise bag from 914.99 as I was just getting into fish and realizing like, wait, 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 wait. This is the kind of stuff that they can do. And that is game seven of the 2003 ALCS. I watched this in my college dorm room with some of my best friends who I still have to this day. And like watching this game, the Red Sox take, I believe, a five to two lead into the bottom of the eighth inning. And it really looks like the Red Sox are going to beat the Yankees in Yankee Stadium. At the same time, the Cubs were in position to advance to the World Series. There was so much media hype around the idea that we were going to get a Boston Chicago Cubs World Series and one of these teams was going to break the curse. And I remember watching the game and it's just like eerily silent in Yankee Stadium and Jorge Posada hits this double. And Jorge Posada had been the catcher for the Yankees throughout their whole run in the late 90s, early 2000s. And he turns the bench and the camera zooms in on him and he just has this deeply like uncanny human reaction that I, I remember watching it getting chills. Every time I see it, I get chills because it clear, clearly is just him realizing, holy shit, there is such a thing as a ghost of the Yankee Stadium. And Jeter gets an awesome hit. I think Matsui got a hit. I don't remember the exact uh, events, but ultimately the... Yankees come back, they tie it 5-5, it goes into the 10th inning, and Aaron Boone comes up, Tim Wakefield throws the knuckleball, didn't knuckle, Aaron Boone hits it, like the second it leaves Aaron Boone's bat, his arms are up, he knows that it's going, Joe Buck yells like, that will send the Yankees to the World Series, and like the whole, like the feeling of watching baseball, which stretches back into the mid-19th century, and these teams, the Yankees and the Red Sox, have been playing each other for 100 years. Everything about the history, American culture, the game itself, the way that the game can just like flip and destroy you and you know whittle you down, but you still keep coming back to it. Like that completely reshaped how I uh, see ba- how I saw baseball, and literally from there to now, like baseball is without question my number one sport with basketball. Shout out to Beyond the Pond friends and guests, Andrew Hitz and Josh Carver. 
That was probably not their favorite baseball game. <laughs> no, it was not. I apologize, guys. <laughs> so they are diehard Red Sox fans. I watched that game in my buddy Steve's apartment, and he's a Mets fan, I'm a Mets fan, and I invited my friend Joel over, who's a diehard Red Sox fan. I probably should not have done that, because you kind of don't want like the diehard Red Sox fan watching the game with Mets fans who don't really, really care about the outcome. Sure. <laughs> so... Steve was really, really drunk, and then when Aaron Boone came up, he was like, watch, this guy's going to hit a home run and end it right here, and that's what happened, and then my friend Joel got up, looked at Steve, and said, I can't believe you fucking said that, asshole, and then stormed out of his apartment and slammed the door, (laughs) and Steve, to his credit, took it all in stride, because he's a sports fan, he's like, I get it, I was a jerk. I'd have probably done the same thing if that was the Mets. That's okay. So. But, yeah, that that was a Roger Clemens start. That was, like, Clemens-Pedro. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was... And that was... The, it was coming off of the a game that ended series. That was the game that kind of ended Grady Little's career. Yeah. Because he, like... Because Matsui hit that, like... That dying quail. He just hit that, like, Bermuda Triangle shot. It wasn't even a solid hit. And then that was... That was it. But what's your, just a little more baseball, what's your favorite World Series that didn't involve the Cubs? So I think we've really been blessed with great World Series this last decade. Um, I even thought this most recent one, uh, however weird it was being in the playoff bubble with between the Dodgers and Rays was really good overall. But um, I have two picks, seven game picks, uh, the 2014 World Series between the Giants and the Royals. That was around a time when that summer, early fall, I could tell that the Cubs were actually going to start making a move for it. I didn't realize how quickly it was going to happen, but um, I was really paying attention to baseball uh, heavily during that period in time. And I just remember watching that Royals one, that Royals run to the World Series and thinking, we can do this. I mean, nobody was picking the Kansas City Royals in 2014. Um, they were a great, great team with a bunch of players that have gone on to complement other winning organizations over the last six years. And I personally loved that Giants team from um, 2010 to 2016-ish, if you will. Um, Fuck you, Aubrey Huff, you piece of shit, you stupid fucking loser. But the rest of you Mm. are incredible. Uh, And I loved Madison Bumgarner. I loved watching him pitch. I loved uh, just the personalities on that team were absolutely incredible. And, uh, it's like Brian Wilson, right? Brian Wilson, um, Buster Posey, Brandon Crawford, um, uh, Brandon Belt, uh, Hunter Pence. I mean, just like characters up and down. Cody Ross in 2010. They somehow won the World Series every other year in the first half of the decade. And in each occasion were the wild card team and then missed the playoffs the very next year. It was a very weird occurrence, but... Um, it was very, very cool to watch happen. Uh, and then 2019, we've talked about Sean Doolittle. That Nationals team, so I lived outside of D.C. I lived in Annapolis for a couple of years. Um, I, I was not a huge fan of Nationals fans. They, um, I saw a Cubs-Nationals game, a very important one, and I got a lot of shit from Nationals fans. Uh, for- Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then this team kind of came together in a really cool way and the type of baseball team I love to see come together being a um, 
bunch of aging vets, some younger guys, but a lot of guys who just need to get over the hump, need to win a World Series, and deserve winning a World Series. And Howie Kendrick really uh, exemplified that. And just their run to the World Series was totally unexpected. I love seeing a team come out of nowhere in the baseball playoffs and uh, make a run towards the World Series. And you know, we would learn very shortly after just how crappy and how how shitty of a team the uh, Houston Astros really were. And knowing that the Nationals came in there and were basically giant beaters uh, in that setting was um, a very, very a fitting conclusion to that decade of baseball and a fitting uh, moment in larger baseball history. Yeah, 2019 was a fun World Series, and I liked that Nationals team as much as a New York Mets fan is capable of liking a Nationals team. Because like you said, it had Howie Kendrick, Ryan Zimmerman, um, young studs like Juan Soto. You know, kind of like a fun, well-put-together team. Plus one that really, uh, God, they had to have a be on fire in the second half of the season because they were the first half there were several games in the 500 totally. if I recall. yeah they had one of those um it reminded me of the uh cardinals 2011 season where they were kind of a no a, a nothing team throughout the play or throughout the uh, regular season and then the playoffs hit and they just went on a tear so in terms of my favorite world series i'm going to take some liberties and not say a world series but it was Basically, the World Series from that year, which was the 2004 ALCS. Of course, this being the matchup again of the Red Sox and the Yankees um, after 2003. Of course, this is when the Red Sox went down 0-3 and then came back and won right on the table. They won four in a row and knocked off the Yankees. That was... Game three of that, I think, God, the Yankees must have, it was almost like a 20 runs. They like yeah. put up like I think it was a ridiculous eight, it was number. It was 18 and 9, but it just looked like it was over. It was romp. But, yeah, that was, I watched game seven of that series with the same dudes I had watched game seven of um, 2003. 2003. Yeah, yeah, exactly, 2003. ALCS. That was where like Johnny Damon hit a grand slam off of um, like the third pitch of the game. Was it? No, was it third pitch of the game? It, it, was, it was very off, early um, on. It was off Vasquez. Yeah, it was Vasquez. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Vasquez, who was a great Montreal Expo, somehow ended up on the New York Yankees. But I remember with that game, there was a hardcore Red Sox sports bar in the West Village in New York City called. The Riviera, which closed, I want to say it closed two years ago. Uh, this was like pre-COVID, it closed. It was just known as the Red Sox bar. And after that game ended, like, we're Mets fans, but we wanted to do some celebrating, so we got to get our ass to, like, the Riviera. And there was people, like, partying in the street. They had police that had to, like, close off a portion of the street for all the Red Sox fans that were, like, drunkenly celebrating in the streets. And there was, like, a Mini, we ended up like marching to a bar next door and just were up to like three o'clock in the morning drinking beers with Red Sox fans. So that was uh, <laughs> that was fun, a little bittersweet because my team, the Mets, were really bad in 2004 like really bad in 04. Like that was yeah, not a lot of highlights in 2004, but anyway, so let's uh, let's kind of 
start to wrap this up a little bit, but just um, broadly, we've been doing this for almost four years at this point. Like, what is kind of like beyond the pond meant to you uh, in the abstract? So, I mean, honestly, uh, aside from having a kid and starting a family, it's it, this is like the best thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, it sounds slightly trite, but like when you think about all the work that goes into this, when you think about all the organization that goes around with it, when you think about like putting yourself out there and your opinions out there, trying to connect with other people. Um, I've never like fully dedicated myself to some project like this uh, over this period of time. And, um, living with the constant thought of how do we make the podcast better? How do we get this guest on? What jams should we cover? Hey, are we free to record this night? All the thought that goes into it has been um, really rewarding. Um, I feel like I've learned an incredible amount um, about generally speaking the importance of hard work and dedication and i've taken on a brand new skill uh, and found so much reward in uh, the people that i've met along the way and conversations i've had with people who've really joined in on this fun with us um on a personal level like so much of beyond the pond for me has been these like lonely hours when i stay up until 12 30 1 o'clock in the morning wake up at 5 a.m. trying to edit an episode before I have to work or after my kid gets to sleep. And those were the times where I really found myself getting the most out of the show. Uh, all the work that has to go into it, it's totally worth it, no matter who listens. Um, I, I, I needed a project, and if nobody showed up to listen to it, I think I would still probably do it. <laughs> I know that because <laughs> I, I definitely started another show that uh, has... has, has as lower listeners. Um, but I just kind of do it because I love the, the, the craft of it. Um, that said it's, it's meant so, so, so much, um, to hear from random strangers who have become friends, um, about albums and bands that they were turned on to by beyond the pond and to find so many like-minded people who were both obsessive about fish, but also made top 20 lists every year. Um, you know, I think about like, friendship that I've developed with Ben Greenfield, uh, Bob Kerr, um, you know, people that are in very similar life, life situations to where the two of us are, um, kids, day-to-day jobs, but these weird hobbies, obsessions, Josh Carver's very much in this category as well. These weird obsessions about understanding dates and records and nuances that, just keep you going and uh, that you need ultimately. Um, Beyond the Pond's become another kid for me uh, in a lot of cases, and it's like a marathon training with no end. Um, I've really learned that if there's nothing else, uh, I want to basically the only thing I want to do in my life right now is make podcasts. <laughs> like, that's it. I love the process <laughs> of this, I love the creativity behind it. And, um, you know, with what we're trying to do with Undermine, with the growth of the podcast network that we're part of Osiris. I mean, my hope is I can move towards doing this in 2021 because, um, you know, going into this, it was just kind of like a hobby and coming out. It's something that, um, I feel like I can do. Um, I, I would say like the last thing is, uh, 
I think really, really important and probably the most important is we wouldn't be able to do this if we didn't like each other. And we wouldn't be able to do this if we hadn't become friends and become really close friends. And, you know, we started this podcast when I was going through quite with it without question. And I, and I hope I can say this for the rest of my life, the, the worst period of my entire life. Um, my, my wife had just come out of a pretty tough battle with cancer. Uh, her mother three days after my wife's final surgery was diagnosed with it incurable brain cancer and died three months later um i was in just like a very very dark place um i know you've gone through some shit since it started um really Mm. serious shit um and uh having that friendship uh this isn't like coventry but i think back to trey talking about um how the important part about fish at Coventry was not the music and the shows. It was the hard times that they had each individually gone through as people and the friendship, the friends that were there along the way for them. And that is a uh, really special thing um, to have. And uh, I'm really thankful for that and and thankful for it. Kind of rambled there. What do do you got? What do you got? Well, I think of Beyond the Pond now, I mean, what comes to mind for me is community. I mean, yeah, we've got a lot of fish and music knowledge, and we kind of like to flex a little bit, but ultimately, I think when we started this podcast, that we just want people to get as excited about music as we do. And I mean, we have met, I have met tons of awesome people that I would never have met were it not for this project, whether it be musicians that I've admired, um... Like in the case of Sean Doolittle, an athlete that I've admired. I mean, people just on Twitter, I mean, people say, you know, social media, have you met these people IRL? Some of them I have, but some of it, it just doesn't matter. Because I know that the fact that I know we've had an effect on uh, some people's lives and they've had a, a positive effect on my, um, like my life as well. And just being able to have that outlet to spit what we want to say about the music that gets us going and gets us excited and that other people feel the same way like for example I recall um, I want to say it was December 28th 2019 last year one of the fish holiday shows I was just it was a, at set break roaming the halls of MSG and just bumped into a guy wearing a Garcia People's t-shirt from um the One Step Behind album. And I said, awesome shirt. He's like, yeah. And I said, like, how do you know Garcia people? She's like, well, I got into them from this podcast, Beyond the Pond. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's me. He's like, what? <laughs> and then he's like, let's take a selfie. I'm like, okay, fine. He's like, I love you guys. Thank you for introducing me to Garcia people's incredible, incredible band. I would not have found them without Beyond the Pond. I'm like, all right, that's great that's lovely i mean i know certainly i think it was jeff conklin who first got me hip to garcia peoples um he had the avant ghetto now he's got his great show on sundays the trailhead so you know plus it's listening to other people talk about music listening 
to other podcasts, having, you know, inviting other people from podcasts into our podcast. It just goes back to the greater podcast community. And I've also been forced to seek out new music I might not have otherwise discovered just to have something to talk about. I mean, obviously the reason we started this podcast is we had a lot of music knowledge we wanted to share. But in order to keep new content, I've kind of had to stay on top of new music and discographies of older artists in ways that I haven't had to before. And that's kind of outside of recording. You know, it's kept me sharp. It's kept me learning new stuff. I mean, it's not just for the listeners. It's been a real discovery into other new music and genres for me as well. And, I mean, Brian Brickens become one of my closest friends. I mean, I think I talk to him as much as I talk to my wife. Like, I'll be on the couch texting. My wife would be like, were you texting your boyfriend? It's like your boyfriend. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. She's like, about what? I'm like, no, I'm just texting Brian about the sporting event. She's like, okay. <laughs> One time, <clears throat> back when Brian lived on um, the East Coast of Maryland, our families got together, went to the Please Touch Museum in Philadelphia, because Philadelphia was the part waypoint between uh, New York and Annapolis, Maryland. We were all in the elevator. Oh, my God. And Brian's son, Wally, kind of got his like finger caught in the elevator doors. And that had a, quite an effect on my daughter, Hannah. Every time she gets close to the elevator, she's like, oh, I don't want to get my fingers too close to the doors like Wally. <laughs> I don't know why she remembered that as much as she did. But that was, uh, that was a very fun time. And I think when hopefully the pandemic is, uh, is over and we can see fish again and we can see live shows again, I think the thing I'm most psyched to do is take an official with Brian Brinkman and just drink and be happy and rock out. And there's absolutely nothing I'm looking forward to more than seeing music with Brian Brinkman once the pandemic ends. So we put a lot into Beyond the Pond. We got a lot out of Beyond the Pond. And I think we're going to get a lot out of Undermine. Yeah. I think it's going to be a really interesting experience. Uh, Obviously, the other podcasters being um, Tom Marshall, RJB, um, you know, Brad Tenbrook, John Hart. Matt Dwyer. Matt Dwyer. Fucking A. The man, it's the man be, behind uh, the boards. The man. He's the man behind the boards. He's the mixer. He's the guy. He was the guy on our Genesis episode. That's uh, It's going to be great. Obviously, it's a change. In this case, I think change would be good. It's a little sad, but uh, don't think that our top albums episode is going away. We're going to find a way to incorporate that into Undermine. That's uh, that's not going anywhere. Yeah, that's my favorite episode to make each year. That is, uh, that'll stay. Um, yeah. You know, and I think uh, the cool thing is we're, we're already starting to plan out season one right now. <clears throat> We've been doing that for about the last two months. We've got pretty much everything sketched out that we want to do we've really just got to hit record now and start to put the pieces together it's going to be a little bit different than our original episodes but that'll be a good thing um we're going to try to create as much of a narrative arc to each season as possible which is a really fun challenge but we figured out a lot of ways it was part of why we tested things out in the fall um 
you know, in terms of the October 2000 and November 95 episodes that we did, and I think we figured out a really cool way for like one episode to fade into another. And um, the really cool thing is there will still be a lot to the Beyond the Pond structure that you noticed in the past in terms of a focus on a big jam, deep dive into albums and artists that are connected to that, and uh, trying to tell the larger story of Fish in that sort of standpoint of. Um, you know, where does Fish sit in larger rock history? What are the bands that we can associate them with and why? And then taking the uh, best aspects of HF Pod, the best aspects of Under the Scales in terms of in-depth interviews, in terms of tour overviews, uh, conversations with fans. I think that the seven of us I think is what it is uh, have a lot of really unique and cool insights and pictures of and or, you know kind of views of, of fish history and uh, we're gonna bring a lot to the table so I'm really excited about that but um it's gonna be good we wouldn't do it if it wasn't gonna be good hundred percent yeah hundred percent we care too much about you guys to put out a direct product so geez I guess uh this is the end. I would say recap the songs played throughout the episode, but I don't know what kind of songs Brian's going to edit into the episode <laughs> yet. So, I think the biggest the biggest thing we can say here is thank you to everyone. You know, yeah. Like we, when you look back at that first episode we recorded, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, honestly, like I had just slightly figured out how to edit. Uh, we had to learn how to record. And we had to learn how to properly plan out an episode that didn't give too much information in it, but also gave enough information. So we weren't sitting there going, uh, uh, let me get my phone and check on that. Like we had to really have a tight ship and all that together. It was, it was hard to do at first, but, um, there were a lot of you that, um, have been listening since that spring of 2017, giving us really good feedback um, giving us enthusiasm along the way, you know, first, and first it was just a few people here and there. And then I'd post an episode and we'd just start to see likes come across the board. We'd start to be retweeted by Yem blog, um, started to get bigger guests. And, um, so many people out there who have listened to this show have reached out to us over the last couple of weeks and it's meant the world. Um, thank you to everyone who has contributed records to our top five or to our top albums list each year so so cool for us to see that and um yeah man it's uh this has been a fucking joy yeah our uh big spotify master beyond the pond list we're not deleting it it's not going away that's not going it still has tons and tons of songs for you to press shuffle on and just go about your day if you want to skip play some 10 minute ambient tracks, that's okay. I won't mind. <laughs> Maybe Brian will mind. But, um, yeah, it was an organic build, 113 episodes, and I'm extremely proud of what we accomplished. I think we're going to uh, do some exciting and more awesome things going forward as well. So don't think of it as the end, think of it as uh, the beginning of something else. I guess trite as that may be so check out the other uh, 
awesome podcast on the Osiris Media at OsirisPod.com. Right, uh, for the time being, we're still on Twitter at underscore beyond the pond. We'll see what we're going to do about that, if we're going to still hold on to that or not. I would say every other Tuesday for publishing structure, but no. <laughs> it's, uh, this one's it. And uh, while you won't necessarily be able to go beyond the pond together, come back and check us out in Undermine. Cause that's going to be fucking awesome. And you still have 113 episodes, not including bonus episodes, to go back and peruse. And this pond is deep as fuck. So there's a lot of things for you to explore. So come back and join us on Undermind. Really, really, really loved going beyond the pond. Beyond the Pond podcast is part of Osiris Media. It is co-hosted by David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman, and it is edited by Brian Brinkman. 